the Republican Party would literally clone Hitler and then nominate <laughs> him to run in 2016, and he would win. <laughs> You know, I have seven kids, and they were all growing up. I told them stories every night. I went from room to room to room telling them all different stories. And I do the same thing with a camera and a group. Hello, welcome back to Happy Amblin, the premiere podcast where we, uh, Diego Crespo, me, your host, and Matt Garingo, my co-host, deal with the existential dread of the world coming to an end and capitalism overtaking society. Again, I'm your host, Diego Crespo, and again with me is Matt Garingo. That's me. Let's party. We're here to talk about the work of Steven Spielberg and Adam Sandler, two people who have nothing in common, but we're going to spend the next year of our lives talking about them. The reason we're doing this, Diego... Anyway, we watched the Sugarland Express. <laughs> <laughs> So I've mentioned many a times before, and I'm going to mention again that Steven Spielberg is my favorite filmmaker, but I had not seen everything he had done up to this point in uh, in my lifetime. So this was my first viewing of The Sugarland Express, his official first feature film uh, released in 1974. Uh, this, I have to say, because I'd actually heard a lot of mixed responses to this film. I, I heard some people say it's flat out a bad Spielberg movie. Uh, it's rough around the edges. It's a great start. Some saying it's one of his best films to date still. Uh, Matt, what did you think about the Sugarland Express? And when did you first watch it, actually? I saw it years ago when I was like kind of – I was trying to watch all his Spielberg films and I still haven't done it. I still have not seen Always. Because frankly, honestly, I've seen so many Spielberg documentaries, which was my main source of information back in the day, that will mention every film, including 1941, and just flat out ignore Always. I didn't know Always was a Spielberg film until like 10 years ago. Um, But I would say I was in my early teens when I saw Sugarland Express, and I don't think I've seen it since then. And, uh... I think it's a very, very solid Spielberg film. It's ru- it's a little rough around the edges. You can tell it's an early film of his, but you can also see a lot of staples that will become major parts of his films moving forward. And you also see stuff that kind of, once he became like a more populist director a- after Jaws, you see stuff that kind of went away for a long time and didn't come back until, I would say, very recently. Um, it's a it's a very interesting film, and I think it was an odd one out for a long time. And I think now it's you can kind of see it more as part of Spielberg's filmography. Let me just say that I, I was very caught off guard, like as I was I was sure it was going to be one of those like very like low budget, um, stripped down kind of narrative films where it's really just a bunch of people talking for the whole time. Like there's more going on than just that, not just in this film, but in a lot of like talking films, at least the good ones, you know, like. Mm-hmm. There, there's like a rhyme and reason. There's like rhythms to the film and like the the, the dialogue and the direction. And Sugarland Sugar Express has all of that too. Uh, I really loved this movie. It's not it's not perfect. It's definitely rough around the edges. Uh, 
I could tell it's early Spielberg. And, and I'd actually say Duel is a better film overall, mm-hmm. in, in my opinion. Yeah, I would, I would probably agree. It, it also reminds me that, uh, why Steven Spielberg is my favorite filmmaker. Because like, if I had to put on, like, everyone always pretends, like, oh, movies. Like, if you look at it objectively, it's not perfect. Like, fuck that. I don't care. It's all about how, how a movie impacts you and how, like, a story impacts you. And Sugarland Express impacted me in a big way today. Uh, I guess not, not today, but, like, I, I watched something else today that we'll talk about <laughs> that's very similar, uh, at least in one, in one aspect. But I, I think Sugarland Express is even a great film uh, to, to, to many extents. And uh, it's got a very different kind of approach for a Spielberg movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's there's a sincerity that people always associate with him for sure, but it's also more cynical. It feels like not just because both films have to deal with cars, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> with Duel in this, but you could feel like the gear shifting for Spielberg. You know, like Duel is a very like pretty nihilistic little thriller. You know, Circleland mm-hmm. Express doesn't have that until the very end i guess spoilers for sugarland express if you haven't seen it i think it's safe to say matt and i both recommend it we're gonna we're gonna spoil sugarland express and ace in the hole yes we'll get into that but yeah spielberg references it and we'll yeah we'll get back to that um i will say that i did not actually look into anything about this film beyond historical contexts uh because Mm -hmm. this is based on a true story not obviously 100 percent accurate but because this was Spielberg's first film, I wanted to go in as blind as possible. I wanted to see if I could find the little cues and, like, uh, his, his camera trickery, the the flow of the film, whatever I could to see, like, how it held up or stacked against his other work. Not in a negative or positive way, just to see, like, what came from it. Uh, and I've, I remain very impressed, and I will gladly revisit this film many times in my life, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> uh, a, a little bit of the historical accuracy, and then we can talk about the movie as a whole. Lou Jean Poplin and Clovis were uh, were based on 21-year-old Ella Faye Holiday and 22-year-old Robert Bobby Dent. And that's something, uh, I just want to point out real quick, that's something that's crazy to think about watching this movie. Like 21, 20, no, 21, 22 years old. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, because I think there's always a problem with movies like this where they, they can never cast people that look young, you know, uh-huh. just be, for whatever reasons. Like, I just, you're you're barely an adult at 21, 22. You know, it's just, I think it adds like a layer to it that maybe this film kind of, I think this film, like, it's missing a few pieces for me that maybe could have pushed over the edge. And that might be one of them is that yeah. I think it, it kind of. There's a bigger divide between adults and children in this than I think maybe there should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's one thing is that they, the, the real people were 21, 22 years old. And the character of the highway patrolman, Slide, uh, was based on 27-year-old Trooper J. Kenneth Crone, who again, like, because that – by then you're a full-on adult. If you're if you're not, you know what I mean. Like there's Republicans yeah. that say like, oh, you're like he's a kid and he's like fucking forty years old. Like no, fuck off. Mm-hmm. The character of Captain Tanner is based on Texas Highway Patrolman Captain Jerry Miller. Uh, I couldn't find an age for him, but again, I didn't also look into this one too much. Uh, in real life, Ila Faye did not 
break Bobby out of prison. He was released in 1969, uh, two weeks before their their uh, extraneous car chase, and uh, Bobby died instantly when he was well, shot well, at we uh, gotta, their parents' house. I mean, we got to go back a second <laughs> and just say that what was what's the story of this film? No, yeah, we should probably do that. Okay. Yeah, I think that's maybe because uh, we jumped to a guy getting shot, and you're like, wait, what the <laughs> fuck? It's a car chase and a guy gets shot. Um, it's a story of a husband and wife who end up in a situation where they take a cop hostage and have him basically drive across the state of Texas so they can retrieve uh, their son who is about to enter the foster care system. Um, kind of the the moving carnival that kind of ends up following of, of hundreds of cars by the end of the story. Um and yeah, true events. I guess it really did get up to like 150 cars in real life, which is nuts to think about. Yeah. And I get I don't know how this story came to the attention of all these people who ended up making it. Um, but it's a story. Spielberg worked on the story and the screenplay was by Hal Barwood and Matthew Robinson. Um, who have they they were doing like uncredited rewrites on like tons of shit in the 70s. They I think they both did THX and American Graffiti, they were kind of like um, Lucas's guys, um, and they would all they would both go on to write Dragon Slayer, which is a really underrated '80s film. Well, I mean, the title alone, <laughs> Dragon Slayer, is fucking awesome. It's a god. Uh, if you haven't seen Dragon Slayer, fucking get on that shit. I tried to find some more about this. I'm sure there's stuff out there. I just I just didn't find it. Um, I wanted to know more about what happened after the events of this film, because I believe uh, the character that Goldie Hawn is based on, um, the, the real-life person, I mean, uh, is got their child back after her brief prison sentence, and then she passed away in, like, the early 90s. Um, yeah, she, she passed away uh, her mid-40s in 1992. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know what happened. I, really, I guess what I'm saying is I want to know what happened to the kid, because I think uh, one of the flaws of this film for me is that we really don't get enough of a look into the child and the foster parents. We get a we get a brief. I, I feel like the foster parents were portrayed very negatively in the film in a way that I don't feel was earned. You know, mm-hmm. and I mean I've heard stories. I know that the foster care system is a nightmare. There's plenty of gaps where children end up in really bad situations. And also, no one wants their kid taken away, but I don't know. I, I feel like there there's there was more going on to the story that kind of made it lack a ser- sort of, I don't know if it's groundedness or just like a full scope of what was happening. It was hard to be empathetic for the characters 100%. Like, I'm not saying I wasn't empathetic at all, but I needed like, I, I even if I knew their flaws, I felt like I could understand them better, and I don't think I got enough of that. Yeah, you know everything in in the movies kind of laid out really well. I think it's just like again that there's aspects that need to go a little further, and because well, it's such the... a stripped down narrative, I mm-hmm. feel like it totally had room to to explore things a little differently. Maybe yeah. that would have helped the proceedings. Well, you get these brief glimpses. Like it's really it, it it really works as like a road movie because we keep cutting back to the car and we watch like the dynamic between the three characters change as they travel across country as they travel across Texas, which is really interesting. Um, but again, I felt like 
I feel like the movie like decides early on that they might be they might be dumb, which the, the movie does kind of make it like they are very naive and dumb characters. They might have made mistakes in their past, but they're in the right for what they're doing. At least I felt that. Did you feel that? I felt it was torn until the end. And then mm-hmm. by then it's just tragic and it kind of doesn't matter whether mm-hmm. they were in the right or wrong. Like what ends up happening to the characters is just such – at least one of them – such a tragedy that yeah. it it kind of didn't matter by that point. But I don't know. I, I didn't feel that the film leaned one way or the other heavily enough by the end mm-hmm. in determining how it wanted to show the characters because yeah. – uh, especially looking into like that they were supposed to be younger like adults like right yeah. in the cusp of full-on adulthood that um that could have really added something uh but i do want to say just the the cast rundown goldie Hawn as uh as lou jean joplin william atherton who uh many people would know from die hard walter peck and ghostbusters uh, and ghostbusters yes uh, um, as clovis fucking ben johnson captain harlan tanner michael Sachs. He's a he's a sorry. I was just trying to list their other credits. Right, um, ben Johnson's in Shane. He's a Peck and Paw regular. Um, this is like him post Last Picture Show, which was like kind of like a research, a brief resurgence for him. Um, Michael Sachs, I believe he played Billy Pilgrim in the Slaughterhouse Five adaptation. Um, he's the patrolman. Um, that gets uh, taken hostage. Uh, Gregory Walcott as Patrolman Ernie Mashburn, who's... Did you recognize Gregory Walcott? No, I did not. He was the lead in Plan 9 from Outer Space. Oh. Well, a step up, I guess we'll say. Sure. <laughs> uh, Steve Cannelly as Patrolman Jessup and Louise Latham as Mrs. Luby. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and then, fun fact, the... The actual kidnapped patrolman, Jenneth, James Kenneth, Kenneth Crone, uh, was a, a deputy sheriff in the film, just like hanging around somewhere. I don't think he gets a big moment or anything. Yeah, he's just one of the he's just one of the deputies at one point. Yeah, um, but this is Spielberg. This is when he falls in with a group that he'll work with a lot of these people a few more times. Um, movie's produced by uh, Richard D. Zanuck and David Brown, who will go on to produce Jaws. Um, basically, this is the movie that made them consider Spielberg for Jaws. Uh, I believe uh, this is Zanuck, Richard D. Zanuck. He is the son of Daryl F. Zanuck. Um, Richard was fired by his own father from 20th Century Fox wow. after uh, the fiasco that was Dr. Doolittle. Aww. And he ended up uh, teaming up with David Brown. And I believe they found him. They eventually. I think maybe they were at Warner Brothers really briefly, and then they found themselves at Universal. Um, they were executive producers on The Sting, and then they started producing um, Proper. They produced a movie called That's the title. <laughs> Just S. I've actually seen that film. Yeah, it's about snakes. <laughs> um, it's it's got one of the great like exploitation like opening like title things ever. Which is like the producers of this film would like to thank all the crew people that put their lives in danger to deal with such dangerous creatures. <laughs> like, like, oh, all right. Um, and they also produced Willy Dynamite. Which I have not seen. Well, check it out, I guess. 
Oh, I also we got to give a shout out to the cinematographer Zilmos Zygmunt. Uh, many people will know his work on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was one of Spielberg's follow-ups to this film. Uh, the Deer Hunter, Blowout, deer hunter. yeah, Blowout, fucking incredible. Deliverance, which is a hard movie to watch. And isn't this this is like his follow-up to Deliverance, isn't it? I. Th- think so this is 74 deliverance was 72 yeah yeah so uh it's a follow-up to deliverance and the long goodbye which is amazing yeah yeah if you haven't seen the long goodbye what the fuck are you doing yeah i could keep going because he's got some real standouts but then he's also got some clunkers and you know he's he a very talented dp kind of varies with director i guess let's let's not forget of his work on the kevin smith film jersey girl i fucking knew you were gonna <laughs> say that I love you, Kevin Smith. Sorry. There's all sorts of stories about how, believe it or not, they did not really connect on that film and did not get along. I cannot imagine why. Sorry, Kevin. Whose idea was that? I can't imagine that was Kevin Smith's idea. I don't know. Well, it's it's kind of like uh, Robert Richardson's going to do Venom 2. You know, it's like, why is that happening? Yeah, but now it's like Hollywood. Everyone's so fucking desperate for work. They'll just take anything. Yeah, and he's like, oh, I'm so excited to work with Tom Hardy. And he, like, won't talk about the movie. (laughs) (laughs) What about, what about, you know, the director, man? (laughs) Andy Serkis? Yeah. I mean, that that could be the best thing or it could be the worst thing. Did you see his Jungle Book movie? No, but I've heard the faces are horrifying and I can't wait to watch it one day. It's not the faces that are horrifying. (laughs) Was that meant for children? Someone help me on this because it is... So dark. I don't think I've seen a darker film based on a children's property. I like, like that someone didn't stop Andy Serkis. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, if anyone who see, has seen it knows what I'm talking about. There's a, there's a severed head at one point. Holy shit. Of a very uh, lovable character. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, but there are no severed heads. In the Sugarland Express. No. Um, speaking Instead. of cutting, <laughs> this film was edited um, by Edward Ed M. Abrams, who uh, worked on Night Gallery and episodes of Columbo, but he did not work on the episode that Spielberg directed, or at least wasn't credited for it. And uh, Verna Fields, who uh, had, is just off of American Graffiti, I believe. And uh, she'll go on to work with Spielberg throughout the 70s before passing away. She has to deal with the mountain of footage that they shot for Jaws. Yeah, thank her for, for making that movie, like, as good as it is, you know. Yeah, watchable. And there's one other person I think you might want to bring up. Who who the fuck? How do you not know? The music? Yes. Okay. And John Williams scored the Sugarland Express, the first collaboration. Yep. This is this is where it all starts, folks. This is where it all starts, and it's a very odd John Williams score. No, like knowing what he's known for later in his career. Yeah, like obviously I, I rewatched ET recently, and because um, we're gonna get around talking about that movie, but comparing that score to this, it's not that the Sugarland Express score is bad in any way. It's just. It's so different. It's very different. It's just, you know, you wouldn't think John Williams. I don't think you would anyway if you uh, if you watch no, this. No, I, I couldn't mistake it for, like, 
kind of like Alan Silvestri almost, you know, less, uh, le- less classical. There's a couple of marches in the score where there's like drums that kind of like rev up that you could kind of see as being um, John Williams-esque. But other than that, there's like like long stretches of guitar riffs. Like it go, it goes in a lot of interesting directions. Yeah, and I would say it even works really well for the film, given the like the kind of backwater era of uh, of Texas and the area. So, but yeah, definitely really weird. It's just crazy to me that that Spielberg would be like, "This is the guy who should do the music for Jaws." Yeah, and then Jaws is just—I mean, everyone knows that score. It's just yeah, yeah, the, the business. But it's very different than this, you know. Yeah, I mean, just uh, some quick praise for John Williams, which I'm sure we'll get around to for the rest of this podcast um, <laughs> because of their their union. He's one of the best, obviously, maybe the best composer, at least living, uh, if not like ever. Well, he feels <laughs> but, like the uh, last like titan of like film composers, you know? Yeah, but like but, not just that. Like there's a reason for that. It's not just because he did Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Jaws, like – he he's a very classical sort of composer, but it, it never feels out of place or out of date. He the way he revamps his stuff, yeah. Um, like even stuff he did with like the recent Star Wars, uh, the sequel trilogy. It's it's a very interesting evolution. Like if you really look at what he's doing with the music in more recent films, um, I, I I think it's it's worth studying just as much as it's um, more like classical. Work. Now his his music was one of those moments in Force Awakens where I was like I'm getting into this, you know, mm-hmm. like right right when Ray's theme first kicked in was around the time the movie started winning me over. Yeah, didn't he say like not not to go all into Star Wars because we're gonna fucking talk about that shit eventually, but uh, like didn't he say that's like one of his favorite Star Wars things he's he's composed? Uh, possibly, um, yeah. I don't know. Um, I guess he's become like him and Daisy Ridley like now have like a back and forth because she was like a music major or something. So she she just talk in interviews, in interviews she just talks about how much she liked talking to John Williams. <laughs> <laughs> like you get the sense that she's kind of done with the whole Star Wars thing, <laughs> but she's really happy to have worked with John Williams. Oh, well, that's good. Well, she kind of has a vibe. Daisy Ridley's kind of has a vibe that she might like. She's talked about going back to school. Maybe she'll like stop acting for a little bit i mean hey like i think it would be a, a loss to the industry because she's really good yeah. but you know do do whatever you got that star wars money now girl i hope someone gives her something like small you know uh-huh like i feel like the a problem with a lot of these actors that get in these like big movies is they feel like they can only do big movies from then on mm-hmm. whereas like i think uh adam drivers had the opposite reaction where he's just working with like directors that he likes that want to use him you know yeah you know shout out to people like that like adam driver robert pattinson and kristen stewart who get their blockbuster money and they're like all right i'm gonna go do my weird like noah bomback movie now and even like daniel radcliffe and oh uh, yeah yeah mr mr frodo what's his name elijah wood elijah wood who's like they've just (laughs) gone and done like weird horror films yeah, oh, he's he's like a really great producer apparently too, and not not yeah. to just completely divert from Sugarland Express because it's a really great movie I think. Um, Daniel Radcliffe, quick shout out again. He he spent like when he wasn't doing Harry Potter's, he was like practicing for like or trying out for Broadway productions and like really refining his craft. Like he's a dude who takes it really seriously, and I I just I really admire that. 
Yeah. Good for him. And also, I believe he beat, like, a struggle with alcohol. Oh, yeah, then very good for him. So, he seems like, he seems like a nice guy, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the smart move, if you're an actor, to just be like, I'll work with smaller directors and films. Like, I already, you already have the big budget film, you know? You're not going to get mm-hmm. bigger than Star Wars. Yeah. So, like, maybe try something small. And she kind of did that. She tried to do, Daisy Ridley did that uh, murder on the Orient Express. Oh, which I, I have a real big soft spot for. I think that's a genuinely very good movie. Yeah, I guess if you haven't seen the 70s one. No, okay, well, fucking... I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm not, but... The, the, I'm not comparing. I'm sorry, but, like, it's fine. I, I, I do like it. I do like those same movies because it's fun to see, even though I know the story and everything. It's just to see different actors in those roles, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, 70s one's much better. Well, we're not talking about Sidney Lumet. Yeah, but it's fucking Sidney Lumet. Yeah, I know. There's like a fight, like the the sequence at the end where people just walk in and stab the person over and over again is like five minutes long. So it's like nightmarish. It's crazy. You know what else is crazy? How we have still not gone back to the Sugarland Express. Yeah. Hey, all right. We can get back into it, I guess. Yeah. Um, no, actually, you see that new Star like, Wars trailer? No. Speaking of uh, uh, characters and character actors, uh, Goldie Hawn is really great in this. Like, I think everyone's really solid at the very least. It's not, mm. it's not a huge cast anyways, but uh, I thought she was really good. Like, she's almost kind of got this uh, blue-collar femme fatale initially. Yeah. I don't know if I was the only one that felt that vibe because you kind of get the, the feeling that she's the one that kind of runs there. I don't think she's uh, the only thing is I don't think she's cunning enough to be a femme fatale. You know, maybe that's maybe I'm reading it wrong. Well, I don't think she's like, like maybe cunning like, is it, maybe maybe femme fatale is the wrong thing, the wrong <laughs> the wrong word, I guess. Like she's she very much guilts her husband to going along with a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. She she all a lot of it seems to be she doesn't understand the implications of what they're doing. No one seems neither of them seem to. By the yeah, end of they the, kind of just the, stumble the, into things with their idiocy. Yeah, the husband seems to start putting things together by by the end, which just makes the ending like more tragic. But she doesn't seem to realize until it's far too late, like what's going on. The vibe between the characters, because even though it is, they they should have cast him younger. It's too bad because the the cast is really really good. But um, I think if they if they did go for that that adolescence aspect of it too, and they're just they're literally just. A pair of kids like fucking up their lives. Like maybe this was like enough because they don't look like movie stars, you know. Like maybe yeah, this was enough yeah. to for that time, but like now I think it's just it's just one thing that hasn't aged super well. And there's a lot. I mean, that's that. There's a lot of movies from that era where the age thing is like you know they're almost thirty and they're still playing young adults. Yeah, like, everyone gives, like, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man shit. Like, he doesn't look like he's in high school. Watch Sugarland Express. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just, just some, something I really appreciated about the the characters. And this is a, a through line through a lot of Spielberg stuff, if not all of it, is that they're very imperfect. Like, their imperfections are what make them really special. Like, because not only are they just, you know, they're kind of buffoons. Not even mm-hmm. with Hearts of Gold, but, like, you really get to care about them. Uh, by the end of it, uh, 
if the movie ends up working for you. Well, this is the first. This is the first put upon mother. We will see in a Spielberg film where she's kind of she feels like she's carrying the weight of the world on her shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, not a single mother. Um, that won't come in until a little bit later. Yeah. But uh, that's a repeated thing of just you know a mother doing something to hold their family together. And this one though, it's interesting because she's portrayed as very reckless. Um, which is just something that I don't think Spielberg came around to until later in his career. Again, that's something where he has a lot of single mothers, but none of them are kind of portrayed as in negative lights as much as I feel like Goldie Hawn was in this. And I don't think she's like super portrayed negatively, but she is portrayed incompetent. And I feel like it's it's it works twofold because of the relationship, so it doesn't end up feeling like it doesn't feel like a mistake on the movie's part as much, you know. At the very least, but I do again really admire their their dual incompetence. Like when they first take Officer Slide hostage, like mm-hmm. he has to like double check the door opening. He has to make sure he's holding the gun right. Uh, it's I don't know, just like these little things that Spielberg trickles in. I don't know if it's in the screenplay or his direction, um, but throughout the film, there's always little moments like that. Like, oh, no, 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 like here, let me, let me show you that, like when they're eating the chicken and stuff like that, or mm-hmm. they're, uh, he's explaining uh, the cop signals over the radio. He's like, oh, no, no, 10 4 just means yada, 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 right? Like, I was very taken by all those little moments in a movie that's already very little, and then it becomes something much bigger with uh, the media hype train and the, the police following them around. Well, so much of Spielberg's movies are about. Like his characters, he he likes to capture reactions in his characters, and he likes to watch that play out across their face. Usually, he likes you know putting them in a scene and then changing whatever is going on. Like their whole thing, we just watch that play out. It's something he didn't. I don't think he got enough credit for for the next couple of years because after this, he'll go straight into very like you know genre specific films. And very like tightly paced movies where you know there's not as the drama isn't the focus. Even though all those movies, everything we'll talk about coming up, will have moments like that, but no one will take those moments seriously for a long time. You know? Yeah, and um, because Jaws is is kind of like the ultimate like touchstone for popular horror, I think, in in the sense that I, I talked about it on the episode we did way back when where. It touches on like everyone. Well, not just not just horror, but but um, just blockbusters in general. Yeah, I guess genre stuff. It's kind of like the one, you know. Apart from like the bigger franchise stuff, there's always there's still that that big like uh, slanderous attitude about like oh it's it's a, it's a horror movie, so of course we can't nominate it for best picture or something like that, or like us. It's, it's just it's never taken as seriously as some of the more uh, prestige pictures. Or if you're Wes Craven, you have a scene in your movie where your psycho killers from the Hills Have Eyes destroy a Jaws poster to be like, that's that's popcorn horror. This is, our movie's real horror. Wes Craven had some very specific opinions about movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least he's not fucking John Landis. Yeah. <laughs> God damn. I mean, I, you know. Oh, fuck. We got to talk about him, too. Yeah? Well, like, yeah. Not even, com- like, yeah, he's coming up. He'll come up. But I just got to say... Fucking John Landis, back before I knew he had a little fucking shit of a son. This demon spawn? Yeah, like, you know, I've, I I love a lot of John Landis movies. I, I think he's a 
great filmmaker. Um, even though it's very apparent that he was a very reckless filmmaker from time to time and a reckless person, I just feel I feel comfortable saying that now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but one thing that always rubbed me the wrong way before I knew more about him is just that he fucking shits on every other film in interviews. <laughs> like he seems to hate more movies than he likes. Oh, he's like uh, that letterbox user that has like an average of one star reviews. Yeah, and it's like, know? why are you even here? Yeah, it's like just him. Like I've just seen him. Like when he talks about other people's movies, he's not very good at just saying, "Oh, I love this movie." He has to, yeah, he has to like take it down a peg before he can talk it up. You know, mm-hmm. like I, there was like there's a great. I think we talked about it. There used to be a show that they aired around Halloween called "The Hundred Scariest Movie Moments." Yeah, well, we we brought that up a while ago. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember when we talked about it, but we've talked about it, and he's one of the people interviewed in it, and if you just watch, like, anytime they cut to him, he'll make, like, a good point, but he'll also have to be like, yeah, you know, this movie's stupid. Like, why are there armadillos in Transylvania? That's ridiculous. (laughs) And it's like, you don't have to make that point every time, John. (laughs) It just rubbed me the wrong way. There's something about certain filmmakers where they, like, they don't want to ever show like their happy side. I don't know what it is. Like yeah. that side of you that just loves movies, even when you know they're dumb. Like you have to be like, look, I know it's dumb, but I love this movie. Like you don't always have to admit that you know it's dumb. Just assume people can figure that out. And I think that's actually generally still a problem, just like in how people talk about movies as a whole like even if they're not filmmakers if they're just film critics or like people who just like talking about movies on twitter or in real life or whatever right there's you know there's there's nothing wrong with just liking a movie it's like it's totally fine it doesn't matter the 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 divisive quality or anything one thing i do like about spielberg and it's a shame that he kind of is such a like figure that he can't say anything without it blowing up into a story um, but when he talks about movies, you can tell he loves the movies he's talking about. And he's not afraid to be like, here's what I thought of this movie. Mm-hmm. And But like in a way that's like positive, like not in a way where he's like, I'm challenging people's assumptions. He's like, you know, you know what I got out of that movie? And he'll just be honest about it. <laughs> and cause I saw there's a video of him where he's like, he's talking about a Clockwork Orange, which is like, that's weird in and of itself to hear Spielberg <laughs> talk about a Clockwork Orange. <laughs> and... He tries to make this analogy of, like, he's like, I consider it, like, the first, like, punk rock movie. Like, make some point like that, which, you know, whatever. But, like, there were all these comments under the video where it's like, Spielberg doesn't understand the depths of Kubrick. Like, they call it a <laughs> punk rock film. It's, he clearly doesn't. It's not like they were fucking friends or anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's always that thing where it's, like, it's that thing of people trying to be, like, they weren't really friends. We'll get into that more. <laughs> Those sorts of stories. But, uh... You know, because I don't even, you know what, to be honest, I don't know if I know the answer myself, because I'm, you know, I can never really know. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, none of us will, unless we were them. Yeah. Like, that's just kind of where it's at. And so, stuff like this show, like, when we're talking about it, like, it's just perspective of two dudes. Well, yeah, like, like, like just so I give you an example of, like, whether or not they're friends or not, Diego and I are bitter enemies, Oh yeah, we we just despise each other. Like it's just when we set up, it's just we just talk about the mic. We just make sure the sound works, and there's just like this coldness between us. <laughs> and 
every now and then, like these. We, he, he, you don't understand how heavily edited these things are because he has to cut out some real fights <laughs> where they get really personal. <laughs> but to give another real example, um, the one thing I always think about is uh, how uh, sex pervert John Lasseter used to, uh, like, he would always talk up how he was good friends with Hayao Miyazaki. Like, he's got, like, like he, there's so many pictures of him and Hayao Miyazaki, and Miyazaki just, like, kind of looks like he's, like, entertaining him, and Lasseter's, like, kind of, like, bear-hugging the guy. <laughs> you know? Like, he kind of, I'm like, look, I'm legit. We're friends. Speaking of things that are just tangentially related to Circle Line Express, uh, this might be a weird pull. But in the middle of the film, as these characters were hanging out and getting to know each other and it was becoming less uh, conflicting between the couple and the, the patrolman, I couldn't help but think, wow, this is what the Han Solo movie should have been. And allow me to elaborate. You know, you know, you, I don't even think you need to. That makes perfect sense to everyone out there with a brain. <laughs> Fuck off. I'm sorry. No, no, I'm not mocking you. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, no, I'm just saying, like, that makes perfect sense. But, uh, yeah. Solo. I don't want to talk about Solo. I'm no, sorry. no, no. I, I, we, don't, we don't have to get in there. I just, I just want bail, to wait. Bail. Bail. Abort. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to use it to, to, like, kind of explain, like, the, the dynamic between the characters in Sugarland Express. It's, like, it's just uncomfortable enough it's just tense enough where you know that this is going to end badly but you don't know to what extent or how and because of the responsibilities the characters end up having to each other you know like it's nothing world changing and there are honestly probably like a bunch of movies out there that maybe even do this better but i'd say this is one of the better ones the kessel run express but I want to talk about the opening. I really like the opening shot of this movie. Like, that was enough to kind of get me invested in what was going on. Just this bus stop in the middle of nowhere fucking Texas. And just watching a guy, like, just take apart a junked car. <laughs> and it's just so... It, you don't... Like I said, I think this duel and Jaws, there's, like, an edge to them that Spielberg kind of, like, loses very quickly as he transitions into, like, Close Encounters and then Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know? Um, where yeah, still, that, like, I, I'd agree with the edge. Uh, <laughs> here, go ahead. I'll, I'll get to I'm just saying, like, he's in more 70s director mode, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not even, like, knocking the guy for losing the edge. I'm just saying there's something to these where there's, like, you know, there's a harsh world at the edges of this film, you know? Which yeah, you, well, you don't feel as much going forward. Yeah, like again, like I mentioned, I just watched E.T. and ev- everyone's going to know that I fucking loved it. I, I was bawling my eyes out like the moment it started. Well, uh, what motherfucker doesn't like E.T.? I don't know. Like it's not even my favorite, like spoiler alert, but like Jesus Christ, that was just a wreck. And um, but yeah, no, no like sharp round edges. There's harsh truths in E.T. Yeah, there's, there's harsh truths. I mean, there's, truths, but... there's divorce. Yeah, you know. uh, and let me yeah. just say, my memories of watching this uh, with my divorced mother in middle school sure left an impression that I didn't know was there. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
uh, for, for for Sugar Land Express. Yeah, there's, yeah. I hope I there's... hope you were watching ET alone. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> oh, did, you had to be carried out of the room after you fell apart. So, um, Diego watched ET again. <laughs> it, it there's this real almost cynicism and um, this this tone that's just so gritty uh and not not in the way that it's used like nowadays i guess but like even just the way the films look between like jaws and duel and sugarland express i don't know if i call it cynicism but it's like there's you feel like there's like an underlying vibe of like why does the world have to be this way you know yeah and not necessarily in the we live in a society meme way Uh, because i think this movie does for for its its flaws and like representing its ideas like all the way or like to the best of their potential. I think Sugarland Express does have some pointed commentary about like these people who wind up in this situation and kind of like um like what other option did they did they have or at least like how 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 they wound up there, you know? Well, it it, it definitely has a vibe of uh yeah, maybe we could handle situations like this a little differently. Mhm. But but again, also it's it's weird. I mean, we're talking about a Spielberg movie that opens with again, like like just like no no subtleties about like that there are people in the world that live in abject poverty, and then our first location is a prison, which is just that's crazy for a Spielberg film like of this era, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he gets the rep- like representation. What am I going to say? He he gets the reputation of a of a director who's like family friendly, warm and cuddly and he he Spielberg can do all of that with his hands tied behind his back too. But I think people do often forget that. Yeah, he he's he's also a very human director and with with humanity comes a lot of a uh, harsh reality. Yes. I think I think it's that harsh reality that people think he lacks a lot of the time. Um I may disagree with those people in certain cases. Sometimes I think people are right when they say he's overly sentimental, and then sometimes I think they're dead fucking wrong. But we'll get into that as things go on. Um, but here, there's not. There's very little. I would I would argue there's not a ton of sentimentality in this. There's like one moment where it is like a little sentimental, and then it becomes like really harsh really quick. It's definitely harsh by the end, which is just like, ouch, yeah. you know. Um, but I, I'd argue for this movie having sentimental moments. Nothing like – nothing that lasts too long. Like uh, maybe another argument people have against Spielberg is that sometimes his sentimentality lasts too long in his films. This one, they really feel like brief recesses from like the shit that they got themselves into, you know? The dynamic you start to get is that Goldie Hawn kind of gets a lot of the sentimentality stuff and then uh, William Atherton is kind of the one who has like like – He's trying to wake her out of it, you know, mm-hmm. where like and he, even he doesn't really understand it, but he also knows that there's more going on than just on the surface. You know, they're not just going to get their kid back. And he starts to realize that. Yeah. And I, I, I do like he I really liked William Atherton in this. I got to point that out because um, I don't oh, he's you know, really good. Yeah. I think people only think of him or at least maybe I do. So maybe I'm the asshole um, from Die Hard and Ghostbusters. But. There's just like there's a great moment early on where she she's like reveals that she's brought an extra layer of clothes to like sneak him out, and like just how reluctant he is to do it. 
like he's almost like I'm just gonna walk. I'm just gonna admit what we're trying to do and not do. And she and she has to like bully him to leave the prison. Mm-hmm. I'm just it's just like a really nice little moment. It reminded me of uh, your comment in Duel how we don't see Spielberg uh, often deal with like male protagonists that um, have these conflicts with their masculinity. You know, in terms of like being demasculated, like in Duel, yeah. like even like the diner that uh the character sitting in when he's like trying to withdraw from the truck chase is like all pink around him you know like traditionally not a masculine color of who who gives a shit nowadays but back then it's very specifically color coded for that and then here um with uh, Clovis being kind of pushed around by Lugene a little bit <laughs> into yeah, definitely well, into it, it, like a very bad situation <laughs> And there's definitely some masculinity elements to it, but I would feel I feel like it's more him basically trying desperately to keep this relationship together, you know? Mm-hmm. Like he's doing it more because he loves her and less because she's like a bully, you know? She certainly is pressuring him in a lot of ways, unfairly, but he's trying to like he's like, Alright, I'm trying to make it work. Mm-hmm. Which again, it just makes it really sad of uh, where how it ends so yeah there's also this there's also a really interesting element that i thought came up really about kind of the cycle of just like the relationship between parents and children because they when they break out they they take a ride with a couple this old couple who are fucking hysterical by the way oh my god um, the best and but uh like the they were there seeing their son in prison like oh we're friends with your son and he said you'd give us a ride blah 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 and the mother's like, oh, our son's a good boy. And the the father, like, immediately says, like, I tried my best to make a man out of him, but looks like I failed. Yeah. You, you could almost frame, like, an entire film around just those characters. Yeah, yeah. And you just get that little glimpse into their lives. Well, there's, there's a lot of tension in that, like, first car ride, which doesn't last very long. But you start seeing it where it's like... Because really what we're fighting, they aren't just fighting over, you know, possession of this child. They're fighting over this child's future and what this future is going to be. Again, I think that's where the movie kind of falls apart because I don't think they make a clear enough case as to what the options are outside of being with his biological parents, you know? I can agree with with that. I do feel that the movie presents enough of a case that the biological parents of Goldie Hawn and William Atherton are not clearly fit to be great parents, you know, like, uh, it's, it's sad, but we do find out that the kid ended up with Goldie Hawn at the end of the film. Yeah. Uh, Which again, it makes it a little odd, I guess. It makes it odd, which again, like, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel like how, I don't know how the film feels about it. Cause to me, it's like, like, I, anyone can change, anyone can improve, but I wouldn't give a kid to these two people at this stage, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm talking about yeah. the movie. I'm not, even talk, I'm not talking about the real-life event, just talking about the movie. But again, I don't know if, like, you know, there could have been a scene where it's like, hey, the Foster's parents aren't great either. The Foster parents are shown to be a little problematic. They, you know, we, we see a lot of scenes where the kid is crying with the Foster parents, and there's also a scene early on where the, the reporters, once this starts becoming a news story, um, the parents bring the foster kid out for the reporters to talk to, which I feel is a mistake. Yeah, well, the kid starts crying. Yeah, um, and then I believe it's the foster father or so, some old guy there 
who um, who asked the police officer, like, oh, use my gun. Yeah, yeah. To, there's to shoot that him. And it's like, Jesus. Again, like, and, and so, I don't know, I just, I ended up feeling very conflicted about, because I didn't, I didn't really know where the film was falling in terms of them. It's, it's, it's the most confusing part of, of the whole experience for me. Maybe to I, me it was it like a problem with it is I don't have a problem with it, but maybe it's my fault for not being able to see because like to me it's like Spielberg is kind of black and white at times, and maybe I'm looking for that when it really isn't here at all. But then again, Spielberg is also very centrist a lot of the times, <laughs> where he's like heroes on both sides, like because you definitely get that vibe with the police occasionally, where like there's good police and bad police, and the police you know. They're not wrong to do what they're doing all the time because they do have a guy taken hostage. But these parents are also aren't wrong because blah blah blah. Maybe going for like trying to be too even is where this movie stumbles. I mean, maybe because just talk about the police really quick. The, the uh, Captain Tanner, you know, like when he basically orders for them to kill them, like when they arrive at the the exchange for their child, which is ultimately a trap. Um, you, I kind of got the sense that he was like, "Oh man, like look what they're making me do." Yeah, it's like you know, and there's the, the that villain scene. of Drive does that. Yeah, and there's a there's a des- there's a scene where he's like desperately trying to get him to finally just like look, just stop. We'll end it here. No one has to get hurt. Like without like saying it, but like heavily implying it. Mm-hmm. And uh, but again, it is like more like I can't believe they're making me do this. Yeah, but then to to go back to uh, Patrolman Slide, he's one the one obviously they get to know because they took him hostage, but um. And I guess you could chalk it up to uh, what's that that hostage thing the the Stock um, syndrome Stockholm syndrome Stockholm syndrome um, you could chalk it up to that being his connection to the characters but I think the movie plays it well enough that there's an understanding between the three of them and I would argue that the film has a better grasp on his character's determination and how he sees best to help these people. Uh, at least by the middle point, after the the shootout in the middle of the movie, where he determines that it is better to stay and like try to just continually talk them down so no- nothing else can happen. You know, I don't. Maybe maybe that's just me, but I I got a lot more out of that character than I was expecting to. Well, he seems uh, to be kind of the audience surrogate, I guess you could say. Just you know, he starts out antagonistic with the with the couple, and eventually comes to their understanding, but also with his foot and understanding how the real world works. You mm-hmm. know, he does yeah. by the end of the movie, he does want to help them, but he also like just knows what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he 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 warns them that it's a trap because he can tell it's not right, and they're you know they just would never have seen that coming and. Goldie Hawn's character didn't. Yep. And until, you know. I should talk about the other side of this. The flip side of this is that there are several action sequences in this film. Yeah. Which uh, we're talking about this movie as like a really, you know, kind of like downbeat film. But there's a lot of like thrilling chase scenes in this movie. And I think this is where Spielberg starts getting that like vibe where he he tries to do this balancing act between, you know intimate stories with like high octane action sequences i get the impression that you don't think it's fully successful here um i liked all of them (laughs) 
But it was fun to watch where it was just like, oh, wow, I can't believe it's getting this crazy. Because, again, I did. I also remembered it being a lower-budget film than it was. And I do like... One thing I do really like about it is just how it keeps getting bigger as the story goes on. Mm-hmm. Where, like, there's, like, a couple, like, small car chases in the beginning. And then by the end, there's, like, 150 cars. We see, like, entire, like, fleets of police cars and helicopters, like, leaving. Like, yeah. once they figure out where they are, like, you just see, like, that whole sequence of all the police cars just getting together. And um, I really enjoy that because I like I kind of like movies that like spiral out of control like that. Um, but at the same time, it does feel a little bit. I don't know because um, I guess we could talk about this is where we could bring up Ace in the Hole. Because <laughs> I feel like a movie like Ace in the Hole did it better than this movie does. Where I think Spielberg's trying to recapture a lot of the vibes Ace in the Hole did. And here it's just, it feels like two different movies as opposed to one movie. For listeners and viewers at home who do not know about the movie Ace in the Hole, it is apparently the biggest inspiration on Sugarland Express, uh, at least from Steven Spielberg's perspective. And uh, it sounds like from interviews too, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's the case. Uh, it's a film directed by Billy Wilder. Yeah, uh, Billy Wilder, director. it's uh, kind of his unheralded classic because it was like savaged by critics upon release. That's um, you know what makes sense. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's, it's a little. It was his follow up to Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard was like a huge hit, like took home like all the Oscars, and then this came out was nominated for like one Oscar. Oh. And Sunset just... Boulevard, I, I actually maybe because I've seen it more, I like it more. Uh, but Ace in the Hole, I've also ju- like literally just watched before this, so maybe I need more time with it. It's a great film. Just uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Ace in the Hole uh, story. Kirk Douglas is a reporter. Comes to like a he, he's been kicked. Out. I can't remember. Has he been like kicked out of every newspaper, or is he just like all miserable drunk that like both. keeps fucking? <laughs> yeah, okay. It's both. Um, he's basically lost his work at every newspaper. But goes into the first newspaper office he sees in town. And he's like, I'm going to turn this whole paper around, and he finds his story that he's going to do it with when a man um, gets trapped in a cave in, and he decides he's going to get as much story out of this man trapped there as possible and to the point where he tells the people that are going to rescue him to dig a different direction because it will take longer so it'll give him more time to write the story Uh, eventually the story starts ballooning up all the people involved start becoming characters in the story themselves including like the sheriff the engineer um the man traps wife who uh we find out she's in a very loveless marriage with the trap man and uh, we get a lot of implications that he wasn't a very good husband but she's playing up that she's like oh I'm a sad widow but she wants to she's you get the vibe she's going to use this fame to springboard herself uh, out of this small town uh, Kirk Douglas hoping this will be this will be his comeback uh, and literally an entire like state fair almost sets up around this mountain where the guy is trapped in the hole for days like there's entire families coming through like, and even they start becoming characters, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and to parallel it with Sugarland Express, the media starts picking up what's going on with the couple. They become folk heroes almost instantly. Um, they start getting... Uh, hundreds and hundreds of cars start following them. And it's like a huge party on wheels of all these people. of Cops, reporters, and just regular people. They're like, want to see what's going on. And people know who they are. They're on the radio. People start giving them gifts and money, all this stuff. And 
Ace in the hole, of course, uh, takes a turn. <laughs> Do you want to describe the turn? Uh, every, I'm just going to go for it. Everyone dies <laughs> horribly, miserably. Well, all right. Um, <laughs> more specifically, the guy dies. Uh, for Let's just for starters, the guy in the hole dies. Um, we find out that he's been there too long. He's, he gets sick. And they gotta he get him gets, out like, of some kind of pneumonia. Yeah, he gets pneumonia for being in there too long. Um, and by the time they realize that he is dying, the way that would have been... There's a quicker way. They could have done a way where they could have gotten him out of the hole within, like, a couple hours, right? But by, they've done so much digging from the other direction that now it's impossible to get him out the other way. So now they just have to try to find a way to speed him up. And just as they're about to get it, get to him, he fucking dies. Alone in this hole, be like, just tell my wife I love her. And we, at this point, we know that the wife fucking hates him, <laughs> and it's just there's a miserable lie. And fucking Kirk Douglas just goes up on the hill. To all these people, there's like Ferris wheels and shit, and just goes, he's dead. And just and it's just like the whole fucking the whole movie just comes to a fucking halt. And I don't think I've ever like that's what was that like fifty two? Like that's a fucking 51. brutal fifty one. 1951, that's a brutal, brutal ending. And we just see, like, all these people just, like, pack up and leave. And everyone, like, the, like any, anyone who didn't physically die is now emotionally dead inside. Kirk Douglas, racked with guilt, just collapses and dies in the, at the end of the movie. He also uh, isn't exactly the kindest man. No, no, to, he's, uh... a, he's an awful person, but, like, this was enough to, like, even this... This whole thing destroyed even him. Well, did he get stabbed? I don't remember getting stabbed. Did he get stabbed? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You're right. He yeah, because he, he's a uh, oh. he, he forms a little, I guess to to steal your word, triumvirate from the Batman retrospective with uh, the the wife of the guy trapped in the cave, and uh, basically everyone who has like who can have a stake in trying. The other to, guy. Bring the, the other guy is the the reckless twice. sheriff who. He's turning into like a hero of the story, and the newspaper writer's like, "Look, this sheriff is irresponsible, and you're you're turning him into a hero." And he's like, "I don't give a shit." And but basically, what I got from Ace in the Hole, and why I think you wanted me to watch it before spoiling it um, on this episode, is because it's a very pointed film about like how the media, or how the media can like warp people's like perspectives, and how people care about something because it's kind of an event, and oftentimes. It's harder to care about things uh, when there are like forces at work that are just using it to glamorize something or to like uh, to make a big hubbub. You know, no one's actually helping anyone in these horrible situations. Well, even to just go beyond the media, just like the desperate cloying of almost every character in Ace in the Hole. <laughs> like everyone's just trying to get out of their like everyone's kind of trapped in a way, not just the guy trapped in the hole. Like, everyone's trying to get out of their narrow confines, and it just comes back to, like, just, like, the lengths that which people will go. And that even when you try and, like, tell the truth, it's too late, and everyone pushes back against you for it, you know? Because mm -hmm. um, that's the thing, like, everyone's, because Kirk Douglas finally, he tries to tell the truth, and everyone starts to turn on him for, like, trying to be honest about it. Because now everyone is so invested in spinning this story the right way. Um, it's brutal. Um, and I think a great film. I think everyone should see it. Yeah, just just prepare for it to be 
definitely a downer. It's very cynical, which I, I think is probably why it was rebuked back then, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. And I, I might have spoiled it, but I also saw it knowing the ending, and it, it still packed as much of a gut punch. So... Just that, it, like, just him on that hill, just like announcing what happened, is like one of the most brutal things I've ever seen. And I just want to, because you know, we start getting all the stuff about the media, and we start getting, you know, we can you can definitely see the parallels and the influence here, but it doesn't, it lacks that purpose. I feel in Sugarland Express, and I don't think Spielberg is the type of director, at least at this age, that can go where Ace in the Hole went. Not that I'm saying he had to go there. But he is invoking it, and then it's weird when it doesn't seem to go much of anywhere. Yeah, it doesn't end up tying it in. I wouldn't even say without purpose. I think there's purpose there in Sugarland Express. Uh, there's it, it's lacking that interconnectivity, not even by like plot, but just like theme. You know, it's like it, it's brought up, and it's it's it makes sense when it's brought up, and it does feel very natural to the story. And I think it even enhances it. So when like the film ends without like utilizing that in any fashion, it's like oh. That's kind of a bummer. It, it did feel like the ball was dropped in that capacity. It did. It, yeah, in my, from my perspective, I, that's what I got. Um, yeah. again, I don't um, hate this movie. I'm not like down in this movie at all. It's a very soft film. It's two hours. It doesn't feel its length. That was the thing. When I sat in to watch it, I was kind of nervous about it being two hours. <laughs> so I was like, fuck. So I, you know, I'm expecting like early Spielberg. But you know, it's a little slow in the start. But once it gets going, you're, you're kind of hooked for the rest of the movie. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I would... I would gladly defend this film from people that maybe said it was a little slow. Like, if you just feel that way, then that, that's fine. I know people that think Lord of the Rings is slow, and, like, I just – I don't see it. You know, everyone's different, but uh, All right. I, I don't I don't think there's too much here that, that um, would bog uh, the, the general viewer down. I want to know if this is just me. I get bored by the theatrical cuts of Lord of the Rings. But I I find the extended versions feel shorter. I never feel like I get the full experience with a theatrical one. I think I'm more like you. I don't know. I just, I, I I've always felt, especially Fellowship. I think Fellowship works the best because like I think fucking Return of the King's like almost five hours, which is a bit much. But it's 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 like four hours, like flat. I think. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. But uh. Um. Yeah. Long. Long movie. Um, yeah, but you but know, I want to say, no, I got to say that everyone's saying like, oh yeah, like they're, they're talking about a certain other film finale that recently happened. They're like, you know, it's not Return of the King where it has 30 endings. Fuck you. There's like 30 <laughs> stories in there. You got to end it 30 times. Yeah. It's a film epic. You fucking, uh, I just, I'm sorry. I hate that. I hate it so and, much. And, and maybe that's fucking part of the point of that ending. Yeah. You know, like, Hey, you can't go back. Mr. Frodo, you can't go back to the Shire. Oh, did you watch all fucking 12 hours of this trilogy and not get that one very obvious thing? Sometimes you leave home and you come back different. At the end of that story, that's what it's ultimately yeah. about. <laughs> Whatever. I don't know. Yeah, that's a... I get it. If you're in a theater, I get why. That's a bit of a problem because sometimes you're like, I've been sitting here for fucking four hours. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, if you're at home, though, and you can take a break and, like, get a pizza in the middle. Yeah, yeah, don't. <laughs> Sugarland Express does not have that problem either. Sugarland, no, but one thing I do want to say about the media that kind of ties into it is, uh, the militia that comes after them in the middle of the film. 
Um, which is really where they basically, you know, it's like the the opposite of them being folk heroes, where these people are like, well, we're gonna get these folk villains, you know? Like, yeah. This fam- basically, like, they bring their kid along. That's what's fucked up. They, the one guy brings his son. He's like, we're gonna go get him, and they just drive out there and just open fire on a used car lot. <laughs> um, in a big, very frightening gun um, shootout sequence, you know? Yeah, uh, something I did not expect in this film. So I was uh, very caught off guard with that. And But it does, yeah. it, it, it is like the one example of the media kind of influencing people to do something dangerous as in, in relation to what's going on here. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also, there's also a really interesting moment where uh, the one kid is like really excited to go along at first. And then once the shootout starts proper, he gets scared and runs away. Which was just, I, you know, again, I think there's, there's about this cycle of parents and children, which again will become a, the, like the central thing of Spielberg films. There's a great Spielberg reaction shot in that moment with the kid when he finally realizes like, holy shit, like this is real. Like this isn't just like, this isn't a movie. Like it, it is for us, but like for that kid, that's, uh, that's horribly life-changing and traumatizing. Yeah, you don't you don't just get the sense that he's like frightened by the gunfire. You get the sense that he's seeing his father for the first time, and he's frightened by it, which is like very dark for a film, you know. Mm-hmm. And we uh, never go back to him. And I'm not saying back. that as a negative. That's just, yeah, just yeah. like it's left hanging there. And that, you know what? That is probably the best utilization of like how the media impacts people in the film. And it's it's so close in in the ending, like because. Everything's building up really well. I think another recent film, obviously, my boy Michael Mann, uh, Collateral. That has nothing to do with the media, but it, <laughs> it 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 utilizes like adding a bunch of characters to a story, and then like builds them all up to a boiling point, and then immediately strips it back down to the only ones that matter. Yeah, but it doesn't yeah. feel like wasted time. And I feel like Sugarland Express gets really close to doing that too. It adds all these disparate elements to this one story that that are about this one story uh and then it just can't get all the pieces across that finish line like whole um one moment right before the shootout that i want to talk about is there's a great moment where uh they're i believe they're in that they're in that like winnebago or whatever that camper yeah and they see the drive-through that's i believe that happens right around then yes yes it happens Um, uh after when, when they're going to bed yeah, and they can't like they can't hear the sound, so he's like, "I'll make the sound for you." So Atherton's like doing the the Wiley e. Coyote sound effects. And may I say, a very good impersonation. I don't know if they ended up being him in post production, but uh, well, it's very good. It's, but it's also yeah. um, it's a great shot of his face looking through the window, and you see the reflection of the cartoon in it. And he's doing the he's doing the sound effects first, and then he stops because he's starting to re- like. In that moment, he realizes that, like Wiley e. Coyote, he's building himself up for a fall. Mm-hmm. And the sound effects, he stops in the sound effects, but they start to bleed into the scene themselves. Um, which is one of those moments where, again, it's we're just watching someone's reaction to something. Which becomes, like, Spielberg's secret weapon going forward. Is, is that the first, like, Spielberg reaction? Is, um, I think there's like one in Duel. There's like one or two like big ones in Duel. There's but a couple like, in Duel. Um, I don't know, but I think that like they they just start building more and more. Like that's like a just a very obvious one. I think the one where it it becomes 
very specific. Like, Jaws has a lot of moments like that where it's just people reacting to this fucking shark. Um, but I think the one to me that is the staple is Devil's Tower in Close Encounters when they first drive up to it. Um, there's just like this look. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that more when we get there, but that shot, um, if, if you're out there, you know what I'm talking about, um, is I think the definitive Spielberg wonder shot. Because again, I think he le- starts leaning more into the wonder aspects of it than here where he's more experimenting with like fear and fright, you know? Yeah, and I guess we should also just say that um, way to go Spielberg for like being able to have that much faith in your actors to like pull that off. Like obviously he's like helping them get to that point, you know, like a director should, but like good, good shit. Spielberg gets a lot of great performances out of actors throughout his career. That just seems something that like maybe flies under the radar because we're too busy talking about his style, you know? Mm-hmm. Or like how and awesome Jaws is. Yeah, yeah, basically. But there's a lot of actors where he only works with them like one time, but he still gets like a great performance out of them. Um, it's not until much later that he starts being like, I'm going to put Tom Hanks in every movie, every other movie. It's not even like a, a diss at Tom Hanks, but I do wish that wasn't always the case. Yeah, so... Uh, and Spielberg has, has gone on record saying that like, you know, like what's changed most in his like career apart from like the obvious big things, you know, like when you're like King of the Hill, um, is that like back in these days he would have like people give him suggestions freely and like openly and like, oh yeah, wait, wait, we try this. Like, uh, I don't know if that's going to work. Like what if we, yeah, yeah, just more open collaboration. And now because he's Steven fucking Spielberg, he, he said it's like harder to, to get that collaboration flowing freely. Like really it sounds like his job now. Like, not, um, not to even belittle it, because, like, when you're a filmmaker, let alone Steven Spielberg, that's a million jobs at once, basically. But it kind of sounds like the big thing he has to, like, overcome is getting people comfortable with him as a person, as yeah, opposed yeah. to an icon. Oh, I can imagine. Um, and I think that's why he kind of only works with, like, actors like, you know, Tom Hanks, because Tom Hanks can push back against him. And I think maybe that's why, like, his best movie in the last decade was the one that he did with Daniel Day-Lewis because <laughs> you're not gonna Daniel Day-Lewis is not gonna be intimidated by you <laughs> <laughs> there, there there are a couple winners that's that's what I'll say for, yeah, for you know, the last I, decade there have been some yeah, great yeah. ones but I think one is ahead of the pack yeah. are you saying Ready Player One is the one <laughs> There's one moment where they they put Goldie Hawn's father on the radio to try and like talk her down, and he just like says, "You've always been problems, and I've always known you'd end up in a mess like this." Like he's just the worst father. Again, it's it's more to this like cycles of you know parents mistreating their children, and that bleeds into those children growing up to be bad parents. And again, which it's just it, it it's what makes it weird because this is a movie about these like parents trying to reunite with their child, and everything that happens in the movie seems to suggest that sometimes parents fuck up their kids. Yeah, it. I guess that that makes it a little weirder than that that final text like we brought up uh, with Goldie Hawn getting the kid back, and like that's just that. 
Because I guess you you could read it as just like intentionally ambiguous. Like, will she have learned from the experience, or will she fall to that same wayside? Um, but I don't know if the movie does enough to even posit that as like the genuine question well, to leave uh, off of. A problem is we we don't really end the movie on her. We end the movie on the patrolman who was kidnapped. I'm going to be completely honest because remember this is the first time I've seen it. I thought she got shot too, and I thought <laughs> she died. Oh. Because obviously William Atherton gets shot um, tragically, and uh, they make it seem like he died uh, before he can get back to the car. And then, oh, surprise, he's, uh, he got back into the car, and now he's going to die surrounded by, I guess, his closest friends in the world. Uh, which is very, very sad, very heartbreaking stuff. Well, he drove uh, to the lake, and honestly, it's, it, the real-life events are that he was shot and killed instantly at the house. Um. And I feel like that might have been a better ending. I think so, too. But again, I think the problem is that's such a harsh ending. And I'm not sure if a, a movie like this has earned such a harsh ending. You know, If they had yeah, backed I mean, up more of the stuff with the media, like we were talking about, maybe that would have made that work better. But because it doesn't have, like, the legwork there, it doesn't – I don't think it would quite pay off the same. Um but I, I will say that, like, again, I thought Goldie Hawn got shot and it was, like, going to be a surprise. So, like, when the, the cops surround the car and nothing happens and you just hear, like, the slight breathing, I, that's from her, right? That was Goldie mm. Hawn's character's breathing. I think and then, so. Okay, and then you see Willie Matherton dead. Uh, I thought, like, because she wasn't moving at all and it didn't look like she was breathing anymore. So when they cut back to her, I thought she had died. And only the the officer survived. And so when he was like he's he's, he's talking to the, the captain, he was saying like he was he, he wouldn't have hurt anybody. I was like that was weird that he didn't mention both, just the one. And then they cut to the 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 titles or the the text, and I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's it. Then it it was just very odd. It was an awkward little ending for me. I don't know if that was just me watching it or um or the film itself playing it out but i'm gonna hold my ground and say that it was the film's way of cutting that maybe um again but i just think the whole thing of him getting in the car and driving off i just think that is a mistake in general you know um i, I think they know really I go as far to say it's a mistake but either way i think i would still have the same problem if they like i think it, it just it makes it unnecessarily confusing you mm-hmm. know because um, we wouldn't even be having this conversation if he just died right there. Yeah. I mean, if they still, like, shot up the car as much as they did, I guess they wouldn't have because they only start shooting when they drive away. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You convinced me. He's really one that last shot by the lake. <sighs> it's a great fucking shot. It looks but, good. Yeah. It looks like, to get good. there. Um, yeah, guess. downer ending. Um, but, again, it's, it's a very mixed emotions ending because, again, I don't believe he should have been shot at all. I think that's awful. Um, I mean, I always, I'm, I'm a, I'm such a fucking bleeding heart that I don't want to, I don't ever want to see anyone get shot, but I don't know. I, I, I was left like not really, I was, I was more impressed by the filmmaking and just seeing a lot of like stuff that I'm like, oh, this is all going to be more relevant later. And also it was interything to see basically Spielberg. Cause it was, I mean, to me, it was pretty obvious that he was trying to do Ace in the Hole somewhat. Um, so I mean, he was like, oh, okay, this is him riffing on Ace in the Hole. 
and but I don't think it really it totally came together as a movie. Because um, you get to that ending, and then it's just like, oh, all right. It's like that's I guess how that's how the story ends. Because that's how the story ended. But like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, mixed emotions. Because like, I wasn't. I'm not even like emotional about it or anything. I'm not being like, oh, it, I'm sad. It ended sad. I'm just like, oh, okay. I think the movie's great until the ending. And there I'll fully argue that it drops the ball and it becomes a mixed bag. But there's definitely enough here that if you're a Spielberg fan, which most people tend to be, um, you have no reason not to watch this. If you're just like a movie fan in general, like I would still recommend it. Yeah, don't ignore it. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really good movie, especially if you're a Spielberg completist. Like it's not one – it's not Amistad, I guess I'll say. And that was the Sugarland Express. I just cut all of that on <laughs> Patreon. Start. You if might, you want to hear our maybe... thoughts on the rise of Skywalker teaser trailer too. Yeah, maybe put the Star Wars stuff out, but we did talk about a lot of things. <laughs> so. Sorry about that. The Sugarland Express is a great movie. I need. Hold on. I Almost. need the Star Wars thing to be out there. Just, in, just like on the one percent chance that I am right. Okay. Okay. Because I want, I want it out there that I, I called it. Okay, okay, okay. Fine. I don't think I am because I it's still like that's like it's once you start getting into clones, that's when it's very fan theory. But <laughs> which is um, why I'm scared it's gonna go there. Yeah, but it could it could work. I think it could work. Um will it? <laughs> we'll see. That was the Sugarland Express directed <laughs> by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> there was a lot that got cut out. That's okay. It wasn't related to Sugarland Express. Uh we talked about a lot of fun stuff, though. This is why yeah. you donate to the Patreon, because we, we go places. Yeah, please, please do. Because I guess my, my Idris Elba tweet that got me a bunch of followers and got viewed by millions of people didn't actually get me any new patrons. So oh, I'm... no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> millions of people saw it. <laughs> but whatever. That's okay. You well, can donate that's because... to the Patreon. That's because you have this retrospective. Once this retrospective drops, you got this in your back pocket. This will be the one. Oh, clearly, yeah. I feel like I'm Ed Wood at the premiere of Plan 9 Outer Space. <laughs> well, that's that's enough nonsense for today. Next yep. week, we'll be back with another Adam Sandler film. Yep. Do you remember what it is, Matt? We're all going to be Happy Gilmore. The price is wrong, bitch. <laughs> the price is wrong, bitch. <laughs> You're gonna die, clown. <laughs> Matt, where can the people find you? I'm an emperor OTN at twitter.com. And you can find me at twitter.com as well, at the Diego Crespo. Check out the Waffle Press on YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes. Again, check out the Patreon. Support the show. Uh, get access to other episodes of Happy Amblin'. So thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We have been professionally unprofessional.